Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We laugh at the medieval view that disease is due to an imbalance in the four humours. Instead, we see infectious illness as an attack by something external. But this can't be the whole story. After all, not everyone got COVID or suffered from it equally. There are mounting challenges to the standard attack-defence account of disease. Critics argue it relies on our being able to distinguish ourself from the non-self, and there is no such mechanism. So can new paradigms of danger theory or adaptation help crack disease? And might immunology prove to be the key to the deep philosophical question of what makes us who we are? Joining us to debate the self and the non-self are quantum biologist John Joe McFadden, distinguished immunologist Anne Ogbe, and professor of pediatric immunology Peter Broden. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Ganesh Taylor. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, we are here today to discuss beyond the self and the non-self. So, we have a wonderful panel today. To my immediate right, I have uh, Petter Brodin, who is a professor of paediatric immunology at Imperial College London. His research focuses on understanding factors that shape human immune system variation in health and also disease, and in developing new experimental and computational tools to study human immune systems in more comprehensive ways. To my far left, we have John Joe McFadden, who is a quantum biologist, professor and writer at the University of Surrey. His current research focuses on molecular genetics. However, he's written many popular science books, including Life on the Edge, The Coming of Age of Quantum Biology, and Quantum Evolution. And to my immediate left, we have Anne Ogbe, who is an immunologist at a biotech company at present, and is also a visiting researcher in HIV and COVID-19 immunology at the University of Oxford, where her research, in fact, focuses on the role of T cells in antiviral immunity. How this is going to work is I'm going to ask a sort of opening pitch question. Each one of our speakers has three minutes to address that. They get to do that unchallenged, and then after that we'll go into the main body of, of the debate. Okay, so to get us started, and I'm going to ask you to start if you don't mind, the question is, do we need a new idea of the self to understand disease? So basically the whole idea of this debate is hinged on you know self versus non-self as a way the immune system discriminates an infectious particle from a non-infectious particle and you know we're 
going to be talking about if we need to go beyond self and non-self. And I think this is supported by a theory proposed by Professor Matt Singer in 1994, where she says that the immune system actually does go beyond self and non-self, and it in fact discriminates between signaling from danger signals versus non-dangerous signals. And these two proposals of how the immune system initiates an immune response would challenge our idea of what is self and also what is danger, or what the immune system defines as self and what it defines as danger. What is clear is that not all non-self are dangerous and not all self are inert. So it would appear that the self-non-self theory and elements on the very basic level, elements of the danger theory, are correct and could complement each other. And it is true, in fact, that we do not make an immune response to all foreign particles, for example, food. And also, we know now that certain stressed out cells would send out signals that would initiate an immune response. So that would sort of tie in with the danger signals. However, we also know that we do make an immune response to foreign particles, like we make immune responses to viruses and other microbes. And we know that certain viruses would sort of look for ways to evade an immune response by sort of down-regulating or downgrading their non-selfness or presenting particles that look like self on the surface. So it does sound like, you know, these two, this, this two models of how an immune response is initiated are complementary. And for me as an immunologist, what that tells me is that we cannot be dogmatic about things. I think immunology is very, very complex. You know, it's one of the most complex elements of living organism biology. And I think we have to be, you know, we're, we're constantly, our knowledge about and our understanding of it is constantly evolving and expanding, and we cannot be dogmatic about things. So, you know, in the face of evidence, we should be willing to change our position. And there are certain concepts in modern immunology that sort of highlight this. So things like adaptation and trained immunity. And I'm hoping that for you as the audience, what you can take away from this today would be an understanding of how the immune system initiates an immune response, why we shouldn't be dogmatic. So self, non-self, the danger theory, whatever it is, and then how we can take this knowledge that we have and move forward. Amazing. Thank you so much, Anne. OK, well, John Joe, you, you also get three minutes to, to address that question. Do we need a new idea of the self to understand disease? And not necessarily, I would say. And I'm going to tell you a tale of three microbes to kind of give you the breadth of, uh, of our interaction with microbes. One of them is lactobacillus. It lives in our guts happily and contentedly. And we are happy and contented with it because it uh, helps our digestive system. It's what you find in yogurt. It's completely harmless. And it's one of those bacteria, along with many other, in a similar category. If you take too many antibiotics, you get rid of this bacteria. And then you have all sorts of problems, diarrhea and colitis-like diseases that can occur, which tells you that our balance between this organism and ourselves is well balanced. It's reasonable and it's okay. And if you upset that balance, you can get sick. So is it self or is it non-self? It's a kind of interesting one. I'll give you another bacterium, E. coli, also in the gut. Also, you find it in the soil as well. Mostly it's okay, but if you travel to another country and you meet other people's E. coli in, from food, from fecal contamination, then those strange E. colis can cause very severe diarrhea and be responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths each year. So this is one that lives happily in you, but 
if you meet other other strains of it, it can kill you. And at last year, I'll give you an even odder one, a puzzle to think about for a moment. An organism called Clostridium botulinum lives in the soil. You can, if there's food contaminated with the soil, it can get into your gut. It releases a toxin, and I'm sure you've heard of this toxin. It's called botulinum, it's called Botox. It's a toxin. It's one of the most exquisitely designed toxins. It's taken millions of years of evolution to design this toxin, and it blocks your neurotransmitters, so you go into a flaccid paralysis. All your muscles go completely flaccid. It remains in your gut. It doesn't invade you. Why? Why has it evolved this terrible toxin? This toxin that is one of the most powerful toxins known to man in order to kill you if it doesn't invade you. The reason is that it is an anaerobe, which means it's killed by air. So it can't grow in you when you're alive. What it wants to do is kill you and grow in your rotting corpse. It's also in your gut. So you've got this range of bacteria that have different agendas, and that's going to be guaranteed because they're different organisms. So some we can live happily with, and we can have a natural, friendly relationship. Some not so friendly, some are beasts. And the beast is as natural as grandma's apple pie. It's not unnatural. It is a natural organism just like we are. Amazing, all right. Well, Petter, what do you think? All right, I'd like to, first of all, the basis that we have this discussion upon is the self-non-self, which is largely based on a genetic understanding of what self and identity is. Because the, all the examples that you just heard are genetically different from humans, right? And that's undoubted. That's obvious so. Now, they do still live within us. That is true. And they also contribute to our health. So in that respect, they are maybe a part of us. And that's where the concept of holobiont comes, meaning as an organism, we need other organisms. No organism in this universe has, or in the world has ever lived in a sterile environment. Right? Everything has always grown in relation to other things. And, and that's still true for us. And so I think the basis for self-non-self discrimination is this genetic origin, that we, we go by the code, the DNA, and then we decide different DNA, different species, self-non-self. So that's one of the, I think that's problematic. Now that we know that we as individuals and as humans, we need others to be healthy. We need all these bugs, we need other viruses and things to live within us. Another dimension to this, which I think is intriguing, is that what makes us different from one another? Our immune systems are incredibly heterogeneous. Everyone in here could leave a blood sample and then come back six months later and leave another blood sample, and it'd be very easy to pair them up, which one came from which individual, by just looking at the immune system and its composition. And if we think about what shapes us with respect to our immune systems, it's not the DNA. The DNA explains a very small fraction of that. But instead, it's the experiences that our immune system has had during development and during time. So we are shaped by the environment in which we live. And consequently, our self is changing. We don't have the same self when we are newborns that we do when we are five years old, or 10 years old, or 100 years old. So clearly, we need to shift sort of this understanding of what the immune system is doing from an, a view of 
discriminating self from non-self and rejecting everything that is genetically non-self to an understanding of what the, the role of the immune system actually is, which is to maintain some kind of healthy balance. In the midst of this chaos in which we live, it's the immune system's job to make sure we, do, we stay on course, you know, we stay healthy, in balance with everything around us. So, so in my opinion, yes, clearly an update is, is required. So in that case, let's dive right in. Okay, so we need to update it. How, how are we going to define the, bio, the, sort of the self at a biological level in that case? Yeah. Do you want me to start? Yeah, please. From my perspective, I think, why don't we let the immune system do the talking, right? If the immune system tolerates something, maybe it's okay then, right? Assuming that the immune system knows what's right for us, then maybe we don't have to do the classification. Maybe if, if the immune system tolerates a microbe to live within us without causing harm, without rejecting it, without eliciting these inflammatory responses, then maybe we'll say that that's a, a part of our being. It's an acceptable member of our holobiont. But then, then that is a problem, surely, in, in autoimmune diseases, in which, for example, in muscular sclerosis, our immune system attacks our nerves and causes paralysis. Is that because our nerves are not part of the self? Multiple sclerosis is likely triggered by a virus called it might be. And mm. every infection is a, is a risky thing mm -hmm. because when an infection occurs, tissues are damaged and some of us will then respond with a slight overreaction, if you will, that kind of spills over into tissues. And, and multiple sclerosis has recently been linked to EBV, which is one of those viruses that we live with. And so I do think the immune system is far from perfect and can certainly make mistakes. But that doesn't mean that the fundamental rules of what it's doing are wrong. What do you think, Anne? Well, I think I went a bit more basic in trying to define self. And I thought, you know, the question of defining self on a biological level is, in my opinion, a bit too complex because biology is quite broad and you know you've what self means to a psychologist versus a neurologist is very different from what it means to an immunologist and so I have sort of said I can define self in on an immunological level but on an, any other broad biological level it might be difficult and I have said that you know self in my opinion is an immunological entity that your body has been trained to ignore. So your body would typically not make an immune response against self. And so, you know, over the course of development, your body is trained in a way that if you have cells that attack yourself, it will delete those cells. And we call this, you know, tolerance, the mechanism of tolerance. And yes, it gets dysfunctional sometimes and you end up with autoimmune diseases, but by and large, you know, that is, what we would define as self and how this works is basically you know when you get some kind of pathogenic in, um, um, invasion for instance it chops up this pathogens into tiny particles and then you know presents it in the context of self antigens to your body and then your body can look at this self antigens and say this self antigen and this non self antigen I do not recognize and so I'm going to you know do something about this and for me that's where you know the basic fundamental of self versus non-self recognition comes 
So I should, I should say, I'm, I'm, I'm also a biologist, I'm not an immunologist, but this concept in particular, I always um, imagine it a bit like, um, if you've ever seen a Western, you know, they always have the wanted poster with the picture of the bad guy in it. That I, I think of this mechanism like that. So the immune system, you know, takes a part of this invading pathogen and literally creates a molecule that is the equivalent of this sort of wanted poster and slaps it up in front of the immune system and says, this, this guy, we don't yeah. want him around. That yeah, kind of exactly. And yeah. So on the fundamental level for me, that is what self is, your, the ability of your immune system to recognize itself. On the same theme, I, I, it's a, a good example is, as, as you said, the, the wanted poster. But I think an important issue is that wanted poster is often wrong. And that's because for 99% of human history, we've been paleolithic hunter-gatherers, living out in the wild and exposed to a lot more microbes than we are today. In most societies in which people are living a non-industrial lifestyle, they're infected with nematode worms. And then they cause very serious disease like schistosomiasis and, uh, and other diseases. But the people who live with them have a very low rate of, a of allergies. We in the West have huge amounts of allergies, asthma and uh, hay fever. And it seems to be that the balance that we have, we are permanently imbalanced now because we've evolved in a way in which the amount of microbes that our body is expecting is up here. And we're then imbalanced with that. And now the number of microbes has dropped down and our immune system is kind of imbalanced. So it kind of jumps on our own tissues at times, hungry for, hungry for a, a targets. So allergy is, is a symptom of an imbalance that may be evolutionary. It may be that we're kind of not caught up with our lifestyle, our hygienic in environment. And this is what's called the hygiene hypothesis. Not one of mine is what other people have come up with, that our hygiene, uh, hygiene has, has made us prone to allergies. And that could be part of one of the reasons some of our illnesses. So that's a really interesting, and let me, let me follow up on that, because this is kind of my uh, home turf. So that would then suggest that if you or a, or a, a family <coughs> decides to live a sort of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, you'll be okay. No, you'll then probably die age 30. Exactly. Because <laughs> exactly where I was going. Because, so yeah. um, the point of all this is that when is your immune system shaped? When does that risk of allergy, asthma, when does that happen? It's not pre-programmed in your genes. You don't have any gene that tells you this is going to give you asthma. It's, it's early in life, during your first months of life, that your immune system has an opportunity to get to know the world in which you live. Because no gene can prepare you for all of the things that you will encounter as you come out of your mother's womb, okay? The life inside the mother's womb is sterile. You can sense certain things, but there's no live microbes in there. When you come out, that's the only chance you get to get to know the world outside you, prepare you for the life to come. And why does it happen then and not throughout life? Why are you not sort of amenable to change over the whole course of your life? And the reason for that, in my opinion, is that if you were, any infection will put you off course. COVID, perfect example. We hear of people who have autoimmunity or long COVID after COVID, right? That would be a million times worse if your immune system was actually fully flexible and could change the same way that it does early in life. 
But early in life, we have something else. We have parents that shelter you, in particular mothers that, from an evolutionary point of view, give you breast milk. The breast milk is full of antibodies, antimicrobial peptides, and other things. During pregnancy, your mother has also transferred antibody from her blood to you, which protects you during this very fragile period. So it's a completely unique situation during the first months of life, three to six months, during which your immune system can be shaped. And what you mentioned earlier about these microbes, some of them who live within us and that are good for us, what you did not say was that if a 50-year-old decides to take some of these lactobacillus, not much would happen. Most of them will just pass right through. They won't really alter your physiology. Many people have tried probiotics, but the effects of these things are minimal at best. You hardly ever notice. It's just a very big industry. There's lots of, of money making around it, but very little effects on your actual health. And that is because there is this critical period in life when, when your immune system actually is amenable to change. Fascinating. Um, do you want to jump in? Yeah, quickly on that, it's also because you're already colonized. There's no space in there. And that's why if you take antibiotics, you kill a lot of the friendly stuff, leaving space for the microbes to come in. The only time you can do it, and it's been, experiments have been done with animals, if you sterilize an animal's gut and then feed it with the probiotics, then you can replace them and, and give them a, a new microbiome. But it's very hard to change it, you know, the, as uh, Peter said, in, if just taking, taking probiotics or even poo tablets. You know, people do this. You take other people's poo in a capsule to try to change their microbiome. It's, it's Doesn't work. Don't bother with <laughs> poo tablets. Doesn't work. Well, that's a great moment to, uh, to, to sort of summarize this opening. So, I mean, I think I'm getting the sense here that the sort of the self can be quite a different definition depending on who's doing the defining. And the immune system clearly has a big role in that, in, in sort of individually deciding what the self is for you, is what I, I sort of gathered from this. Also, it was really good to hear from Petter about the sort of the, the window of opportunity from which the sort of the character almost of your immune system is established being in the first sort of six months of life. That's really fascinating. And perhaps we'll touch on it later, this sort of, I wonder what that might all say about our identity. But um, in, in the sort of next broad theme that I wanted uh, us to, to cover is, you know, basically can an, the new paradigm of danger theory or adaption sort of help with addressing diseases and how we, how we deal with them? But I'd really appreciate if, if one of you would feel comfortable to, to actually define what danger theory is and what adaption is for our audience. I don't know who, who feels up for that. Me Anna? or Anna? Anna? Um, I, can, I can give it a go and then Peter can support me. He's the professor. Yeah. <laughs> She's the immunologist. <laughs> well, um, so danger theory is this theory that was um, proposed by Polly Matzinger in 1994, which was a time when you know immunology was going, undergoing some sort of change. We had this model of the self versus non-self that was proposed in the late 50s, and then that sort of evolved when people said, well, you know, we need more signaling. This is not quite a complete model. And then another immunologist, Charles Janeway, came up with the self versus infectious non-self to sort of give a bit more resolution to what he what we meant by non-self and then in i think that was in 89 and then in 94 polly or professor matzinger had 
come up with, you know, it's not just self versus non-self, certainly there must be something more. And she said, you know, it is the danger signaling or danger theory. And basically what she said is that not just your immune cells, but every single cell in your body has got the possibility to send out this danger signal. So in immunology, we've got two main signals that would sort of kickstart an immune response. And the first is holding out that poster and saying, hey, there's something wrong here. And your immune, system, your immune cells sort of traffic there. And then the second would be the thing holding out that poster and your immune cells saying, yeah, this is definitely non-self. And then there's another signaling cascade that happens. And she said, no, you need a third signal. And that third signal is that you need danger molecules coming in to sort of push that along. And while, you know, even for Professor Matt Singer, she's, you know, it's, it, she, it, she hasn't quite fleshed it out as, you know, we understand the, flesh, uh, the self versus non-self model. Um, there are still some loopholes with that theory. Um, and then with adaptation, it's basically challenging the idea that your immune system is stagnated. It says, you know, it has to be contextual. You know, you have to put in the environment, you have to put in what is going on, and your immune system is able to change in a reversible way to adapt to whatever is going on. Yeah, I agree with that. And if you think of it, walking into a dark room, right, you don't see anything from the beginning. And then after 30 seconds or so, your vision adapts, and you start seeing contours around you and so on. And what that basically illustrates is that the immune system is a sensory system, just like your vision, and it must sense relative changes, not absolute changes. I hope that makes sense. So if you go from, from one state to another, it's the change that's important. It's not the absolute uh, amounts. And, and, and because in order to do that, the system must constantly adapt, just like your vision, like your hearing or your senses. And, and, and so that fits with the idea that adaptation on goes on all the time. However, none of these things would explain why in COVID, for example, the majority have a very mild infection, and then a few individuals have a massive, severe infection. And so these things are not, there's something more here. There's a layer of regulation that we still don't fully understand, which causes this enormous variability among people. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, go, uh, can I, uh, yeah, I'd um, just like to emphasise and, and um, illustrate some of the, these points that infectious diseases mostly, the damage that you get is caused by your immune system, mostly. I, I work on mostly on two diseases, tuberculosis and meningitis, and they're both really the damage is caused by the immune system. And uh, the immune system is the most dangerous thing in this room. It could kill you in a minute. If your immune system is activated, these danger signals, as Annie and uh, Peter have been talking about, they are so strong that you can get allergic shock that will kill you in minutes. There's nothing, no microbe can do that, but your immune system can if it's activated. So your immune system has this good and bad. It causes damage. It, it will clear diseases 
it will uh, kill microbes, but in doing so, it has to kill cells. And when these danger signals get to high level, it creates it, for example, in tuberculosis, one of the diseases I work with, it will cause holes in your lungs. It will cause so much damage that your lungs will fill up with holes and they will fill up with fluid. And eventually you'll drown in your own lungs because they've got so much fluid in them. And that's mostly caused by the immune system. Similarly, meningitis, another terrible disease, it's caused by one of the things that actually also happens in COVID, a cytokine storm, as it's called, where the danger signals are so strong that they cause your immune system to go into hyper mode in which the kind of information that you normally get if you, say, cut your finger and you'll get some information added on your finger will actually happen in your entire body. And all your blood vessels will dilate to allow fluid to flow out of your body and you go into shock, which means that your blood pressure will drop down so low that you're not able to perfuse your, your organs. And again, that can happen in, uh, in meningitis in a matter of hours. And that's caused really by the immune system. So that balance is a delicate balance. And it can be triggered in lots of different directions. And much of the damage that the microbes cause are actually caused by our immune system. But without it, we'd be dead. Yeah. So it's a tricky it, one. It, can, I, can I just say that the only thing, you know, um, it, the immune system is a very powerful system, but I would use the word potentially, um, you know, I would, I would qualify what you've said with potentially, because it's also very heavily regulated. It's very, very he heavily regulated. So it wouldn't, um, uh, you, you do need the cytokines at the start of your immune response in order to initiate the immune response and to sort of pass it along to the next cells that will do what they do. But that balance is kept very much under control. It, it does get dis dysregulated in certain cases, but um, at the bulk majority of the times, it is kept under control. That's really interesting. I mean, Definitely. also reassuring to hear that we can't just go nuclear at the drop of a hat. So, I mean, just thinking back to the question, which was, you know, can, can these two new sort of theories um, or relatively new theories of this danger theory where you have these sort of signals that indicate that, you know, there's danger happening. And the second theory being this sort of adaption theory of the immune system where, you know, it can learn and be smart and adapt, well, literally adapt to, to its environment. So can these two sort of new ways of understanding the immune system actually help address disease was the question. But I feel like already in what, you, what, what the three of you have been saying is it becomes very apparent that disease is almost too broad a term, right? That yeah. you've all discussed, there's microbes, there's things from the outside, there's what happens when the body suddenly starts to see other parts of the body is different, the effect of that. I mean, let, just to be really basic here, what is disease? <laughs> well, uh, well, disease. I mean, I'm, I'm a doctor, right? The first thing you learn is that disease is the uh, uh, is anything that is, you know, a disruption of balance or homeostasis. And so anything, anything, really. Okay. Um, and health is defined as the absence of a disease. Hmm. So you could you could philosophize, you yeah, know, yeah. have a long and discussion around that, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think the, the this idea that danger theory and adaptation will explain will explain the immune system better than self-non-self, -self, I think is clear. Okay. But it doesn't explain it all. Yeah. Right. There, are, there are, you know, think of transplantation. You transplant an organ from one individual to another one. That doesn't necessarily trigger danger signals. Um, it doesn't necessarily lead to an adaptive change. But it's rejected. The organ is rejected. 
that's sort of the basis for the self-non-self discrimination from the beginning. However, if you do the exact same procedure very early in life, that's tolerated. And in mice, for example, you can do this and then you don't need to suppress the immune system of the accepting host. So adaptation, the point of that is that adaptation, yes, but it's very different. The system is very amenable during a certain window of time, and then the, for the rest of the life, it's more static. Um, and so we have to also keep that in mind, that there are different phases, just like puberty is another developmental phase where we have a unique biology and physiology and so yeah. on. That's interesting. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting how your immune system adapts to yourself and learns who you are really and okay I'm not gonna I'm not going to attack this tissue and that balance is critical to health and it keeps you alive microbes also learn to manipulate it there's another bug called the leprosy bacillus and for reasons that we don't really understand at all when the leprosy bacillus infects you it switches off your immune system's attack to it you become allergic as it's called to it the leprosy bacillus, it's, it's somehow able to manipulate the immune system to say to the immune system, hey, I'm, I'm okay, I'm one of the boys, I'm, I'm one of your cells, don't hit me. And lots of microbes can do that. And I think what would be really good, and, and scientists are working on this, if we could understand how microbes manipulate our immune system, we might be able to better manipulate our immune system in order to prevent a lot of the disease. As Peter's already said, I think, that a lot of the pathogenesis of COVID, for example, is actually the immune system in disarray. It's doing too much. We really need to understand that and maybe dissecting how over millions of years the pathogens that we are dealing with have, we've dealt with them and we managed to live comfortably with many of them. Uh, learning how that works will, could help us to kind of correct some of the conditions that we still suffer from. I mean, I think I said already, right, so I'm, I'm a biologist as well. I love this idea that like, the more we learn about the immune system, the more we'll be able to step in and help regulate it to sort of better, better facilitate health in, in, in those circumstances, basically. So I, I really appreciate that. That said, I'm now going to sort of push us a little bit more into the realms of philosophy, so strap in. <laughs> Basically, in the last sort of uh, 10 minutes or so that we have, can we, can we address the, the question of whether or not immunology might actually prove to be the key to a rather more deep and philosophical question of what makes us who we are? And I feel like we already sort of started touching upon that because you especially, Peser, said it very, very clearly that, and well, actually, John Joe also, I mean, all of you, have said that the, the sort of the self and who you are is very unique to both yourself, but also clearly seems to be, you know, what did you call it, the hollow? Hollow beyond is hollow a word beyond. that is often used, which basically means me and all of these organisms that live within me and on my skin and so on. And yeah, if I was to sort of continue on what you just said, I think the immune system clearly defines the borders of the individual, you know, sort of where I end, where I begin and end, both by what it tolerates, but also what it fends off, right? And so I do think that's true, but we have to broaden the perspective beyond just my own identical DNA tissues and sort of, and include all of these other things, because we clearly cannot live without you know, the microbes in our guts and on our skin and so on. 
I mean, also, I, I want. It's interesting. So again, I'm a geneticist. We often talk a lot about DNA and how you know if you could keep your DNA and then put it into an egg cell in the future, yeah, yeah. you would have your identical. T- you know, you would exist again. And of course, you you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. There, you know, there's increasing evidence that the relationship that you have with the bacteria, your, your yeah. hollow beyond, effectively, has really significant impacts yeah, on. Yeah behavior mood you know increasingly the gut brain axis is really being you know understood a lot more in recent times so yeah i mean yeah no that's very true and for example think of increasing rates of neurodevelopmental disorders or autism adhd these types of things it's it's very clear that when the brain is during development inflammation is really bad And where does that inflammation come from? Well, it comes from the fact that when we are colonized after birth with microbes in the gut, on the skin, and so on, if the immune system does not interpret this as an acceptable part of my being, it will reject it, right? And so this goes back to what we talked about earlier, this really critical period early in life where the system is amenable to change and and, and where we are really shaped as a sort of holobiont. And so we really need to focus a lot of efforts on understanding what's going on there and what's going wrong in some individuals during that period. What do you think, John Joe? I kind of think that the notion of self is misguided in the first place. I think we have too strong a notion of self, particularly in, in our societies. In many other societies, people have a broader notion of self and consider themselves not only them, but also the society, some aspects of the society around them, other people, and that's part of their selfhood. We kind of think, okay, it's we as individuals are the only things. And we know that that's already faulty because as we've discussed already, we as individuals have bugs with it living within us, millions of them about the same number of cells as ours, that we're happy to live with. And if we get rid of them, that will cause us, that will cause us ill health. So we've got to kind of broaden it to kind of think a little bit more generously and also realize that we may be overreacting in some case to self. I mean, there are other diseases like Crohn's disease I worked on for a while in which we are reacting to our gut, probably because we're treating the bugs that are harmless in our gut as as dangerous and la- raising too many danger signals in our gut. So we've got, I don't think we can completely trust our immune system. Our immune system gets it wrong quite often. And I think we kind of have to say, well, is self, self is what we want it to be. We can be entirely individualistic and say, I'm going to, I'm going to keep myself and and try to set borders, but we're going to find it difficult because if we do, we might get rid of good organisms and encourage bad organisms. And I think it's a it's a false notion, self, that we have to kind of broaden that and and start. We we have so many things wrong with us because we have this very kind of ne- uh, selfish notion of self that we. We're, we want to keep ourselves healthy, of course, but that means I think we have to be broader in terms of our definition of self. Can I pick yeah, up on that? Yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying there about this communal feeling. And, and you have to remember, evolution also shapes our immune system by infections. It's the only thing that evolution yeah. has cared about. Autoimmune diseases, you know, forget it. There's no pressure on... On, on the immune system to adapt in that sense. And, and what evolution also did is obviously look into the population, right? The survival of the population rather than the individual. And so we are one with the community in which we share microbes, good and bad, and, and I agree with that. I love this idea of like the, the communal self, literally, even when you, even when we would say I as an individual, you're already speaking for a community of, of yeah. organisms effectively and effects mm, and histories. True. Yeah, that's true. 
Uh, Anna, what are you? What are your thoughts on this? I don't know that I know the answer to that. I know, you know, the immune system does play a huge role in shaping us, you know, as a people, as a population, you know, who responds to, you know, people, some people responded to COVID, some people did not, you know, some people make, you know, get autoimmune disease, some people don't, some people have got this sort of microbiome and some people have got a different type depending on where you've grown up and all of that. But I think, in my opinion, whittling down who we are to just our immune system is a bit simplistic, and I think we're a bit more than that. Sure, but do you think, in the flip side, do you think that most people wouldn't necessarily say, or even think of their immune system as part of their selves? Like when you meet someone, you say, you know, tell me about yourself. You know, <laughs> no one would say, you know, yeah. actually, I have pretty good MHC class, blah, blah, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. But, but do you think actually, you know, that sounds flippant, but do you think actually our understanding of immunology and this sort of, networks and communities sort of idea has something to speak to about how we currently think of identities perhaps you know to loosen our right you know to be clear that you know you might think of yourself as you just you but you are not you you are a walking community and so therefore perhaps I don't know I don't want to put words in your mouth yeah obviously. yeah I guess I guess in a way and I think um, I think it was um, um, Peter that talked about the microbiome and I have heard of studies where you know couples completely separate and then they become a couple and then within X number of months they find a complete change in their microbiome Whoa. you know and they sort of synchronize well, and, I don't know how I feel know, about that, that <laughs> <laughs> that's that's quite interesting and I guess in that sense you can yeah and even individuals who live in the same household, Houses, yeah. they have microbes, yes, that's not surprising because they share foods and use the same washrooms and whatever, but even their immune systems are more similar. So if we take people in this room and we blood sample each and every one, and we, could, we might be able to tell who lives with who just from the blood samples and the immune system. The other thing is, uh, which I think is really important to this discussion, is that in contrast to many other systems in our bodies, we don't have a test for a good or bad immune system. Oh, no one here can go to the doctor and say, hey, what's my immune system like? There's no answer. I get that question all the time, by the way, from parents whose kids are sick all the time. But we don't have a test. You know? and that's another thing we really need. We need to define what a healthy immune system looks like and what it does. We can do it for livers and kidneys and hearts and lungs and so on, but we can't do it for the immune system. But don't and you think, Peter, that's likely to be different for different people, that there isn't going to be any perfect immune system? It would depend on your environment, where you live, sure. who you live with, all of those kind sure. of things. But you could set boundaries and it. say, you know, this response is shit, you're going to have be really sick if you get COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what we want, right? We want to be able to say something like that. And we could identify the extremes. You know, we mm -hmm. have patients with AIDS who have no CD4 T cells. We can identify those. Mm -hmm. But the, that's outliers, right? We want to find the variation within this room so we know who is going to have rheumatoid arthritis. I think we do that a bit with certain diseases like um, HIV where we've got correlates of, um, you know, 
people who would not progress, correlates of uh, progression. With certain other diseases in vaccinology, we often look for correlates of protection. So that, in a way, um, is us trying to you know, set a proxy for how we can define a good immune system. So that but I, I don't know if that really works all that well. I mean, I've been working in TB for several decades, and people have been looking for correlates of protection in TB and not found them. Uh, and that's because in different, I, I think it's like looking for correlates of complex things like your personality and your genes, thinking that there's going to be some single thing that you can identify that will, that will be a correlate of your personality. There's probably not. There's probably a thousand genes that are going to affect your personality, and it's going to be a different thousand in different people. And I think it's probably like that with the immune system, that everybody's immune system is going to be different, and what will be a dysfunctional immune system in one person will not be dysfunctional in another person. And you don't have that complexity. You don't have that history, the history of that person's lifestyle, the history of who they met, you don't have that to put into your equations. So I think it's going to be really, really hard and, uh, to find. I don't find think you need that either. I mean, you brought up allergies and these things earlier. And think of this. Some, some kids have to be born by cesarean section to save the mother's life or save the baby's life. We know it's not ideal. Some children have to get antibiotics during the first weeks of life because they have signs of an infection that yeah. could save their lives. But in the long term, could increase their risk of asthma and allergies. We should be able to give to correct some of these things. We should be able to give everyone an optimal start. If you can't breastfeed or you don't want to, that child should, should get something else to optimize the development of their immune system and lower the risk of some of these diseases. We should be able to do that. I'm, I'm convinced we will, but that's, I think that's where we should start, early on when the thing is shaped. On that note, please can you put your hands together to thank our wonderful panel for such a wonderful discussion. Thank you for participating as well. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.